Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America. Located around 60 miles north of Denver, Fort Collins is the fourth most populated city in the state of Colorado. Nestled in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains and along the banks of the Cashlapooter River, Fort Collins has a lot to offer both thrill-seekers who want to try whitewater rafting and those who want a quiet life amongst stunning scenery. The city of Fort Collins is an exciting place to be on Independence Day. On July 4, 2011, many residents went out to enjoy the Old Town Parade and fireworks display with their friends and family members. July 4th is well known as one of the busiest days of the year for fire and EMS departments across the United States. Accidental injuries and fires are the cause of most emergency calls. But just as the sun began to rise on July 5th, 2011, one resident of Pomona Street in Northwest Fort Collins noticed flames and smoke billowing from an upstairs window on the south side of an apartment. The Fort Collins Police and Poudre Fire Authority were dispatched to the scene at around 5.33 a.m. As they approached the rear of the building, they were stunned to see a badly injured woman lift herself off of the concrete below an open window on the second story. She was bleeding and naked, but the adrenaline coursing through her body allowed her to run toward the flashing blue lights on the street. She was quickly taken into the back of an ambulance. Before the woman could tell the police what had happened, she collapsed and became unresponsive. Apart from the smoke that clung to her hair and skin, the emergency responders could smell something else. Bleach. Hello listeners, I'm your host, Nina Instead, and welcome to episode 62 of They Walk Among America a joint production between the Law & Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. Thirty-one-year-old Lydia Tillman was a Colorado native, but she had only been living in Fort Collins for around a month before her apartment went up in flames. 
She had left the state six years earlier to work as a wine expert in New York City, based in an upscale restaurant. Her career took her abroad to Spain as she developed her skills as a connoisseur. After attempting to secure work in Spain, the economic crisis in the country meant that Lydia failed to find a position in Europe, so she took some time out to do volunteer work in Peru. In 2011, her father was diagnosed with cancer, so she made the decision to move back to Colorado to be closer to her family so she could help take care of her dad. She worked as a sales representative for the Natural Wine Company a Denver-based organization that distributes wine. Lydia lived alone in the apartment in Fort Collins and was steadily making it her home, having taken out a line of credit to purchase a new bed. She had a few friends in the area, and on July 4th, she had gone with them to watch the fireworks display. Within hours of leaving her friends and heading home, she was in a coma, and her apartment was destroyed by a fire. Lydia was taken to Medical Center of the Rockies, a regional-based medical center in Loveland, Colorado, around 15 miles from Fort Collins. Before she had the chance to speak with doctors or police, Lydia suffered a massive stroke and was placed in a medically-induced coma. It was determined that she had been strangled with such force that she sustained bilateral carotid dissections that caused a clot to form, resulting in a stroke. She also sustained a subdural hematoma just behind her frontal lobe, brain swelling, a broken eye socket, a shattered jaw, bleeding between her skull and brain, and bleeding within the brain. Other injuries appeared to have been caused by someone stomping on her, like broken ribs, bruised lungs, and gastrointestinal bleeding. All of those injuries had been inflicted before she jumped out of the second-story window onto the concrete below. She had also broken her wrist and ankle. Before being transferred to the neurological ICU at the University Hospital in Denver, a sexual assault nurse examiner, Sue Webster, conducted a rape examination on Lydia and scraped under her fingernails before she sent the swabs off to be tested for the presence of her attacker's DNA. Meanwhile, back at Lydia's apartment, the fire had been extinguished, and the Colorado Bureau of Investigation were brought in to assist in the case. Shadow, a dog from the canine unit, was taken into the apartment to look for the presence of an accelerant. The dog alerted that there had been something used to start the fire, leaving no question that the blaze had been intentional. There was also a strong smell of bleach throughout the scene, Detective Jacqueline Shackley led the investigation. She said that Lydia's injuries were like someone who had been in a high-speed collision. When Lydia's family were informed, they traveled to the ICU and could only identify her by a tattoo on her leg, as her face had swelled beyond recognition. Although victims of violent assaults are not typically identified publicly during the investigation, Lydia's family were desperate for answers as to who had beaten, raped, and strangled her before dousing her with bleach and leaving her for dead in her burning apartment. Detective Shackley received information about a man seen in the Fort Collins area around the time of the attack. With the assistance of the Denver police, the CBI were able to compare the DNA found beneath Lydia's fingernails with the suspect's sample. 
While they awaited the results of the DNA comparison, officers tracked the suspect through Fort Collins on Friday, July 10th. They watched as he spoke with intoxicated young women outside of nightclubs, and when an undercover officer approached him, he gave a fake name. The officer wrote in a report that the suspect appeared extremely nervous when he provided this information and said he did not have identification and did not know his address and he did not have a phone number. He was allowed to leave, but he changed his clothes and put on a hat before following another young woman through the streets. The suspect was arrested and charged with a misdemeanor offense of providing false information. He told the arresting officer that he had lied because he was scared and he didn't want the woman he was with to know his real information. Three days later, investigators received word that the DNA from Lydia Tillman's attacker matched the suspect, 31-year-old Travis Forbes. Travis Forbes was held in Larimer County Jail on charges of false reporting when he was rearrested on suspicion of arson, first-degree sexual assault, and attempted murder. Forbes had a history of criminality in Fort Collins. In his late teens, he was arrested numerous times for theft, assault, and burglary. He had broken into a number of homes and businesses, and when his home was searched, police found several pairs of women's underwear. After racking up nine charges, including two felony burglary counts by 2004, Forbes was once again behind bars for an unprovoked assault on two women in Highlands Ranch near Denver. The women were jogging when they passed Travis Forbes, who threw a rock at them, hitting one of the women in the back of the head. He later claimed the incident caused him to turn his life around, and he started his own business, making and selling gluten-free granola bars in Denver. But the police had a suspicion that Forbes still harbored some criminal intent, especially after he had been the last person to see a teenage girl before she went missing, three months before Lydia Tillman was almost murdered. Maria Monhe was only 15 years old when her daughter Kenya was born in 1992, and she made the difficult choice to leave her baby behind in Honduras when she moved to the States just over a year later. In 1994, Maria met and married Tony Lee, and they had two children together. Maria worked hard to ensure her eldest daughter could join her in Aurora, Colorado. And when Kenya Monhe was 12 years old, she finally made the trip to live with her mother, stepfather, and siblings. Kenya quickly adapted to life in a new country, learning English and excelling in school. After graduating from high school, Kenya had ambitions to work in media production. She made a decision to move out of the family home in early 2011 and moved in with her boyfriend, Leo. She remained very close with her parents and siblings after moving out. Kenya was active in the community, teaching younger children at Sunday school. Unbeknownst to her family, Kenya and her friends were going out on the weekends. Using fake IDs, they were able to gain entry into over 21 nightclubs in Denver's Lodo District, a local name for lower downtown's nightlife scene. On March 31, 2011, Kenya and her friends went out to the 24 Carat Club. The following morning, Kenya's boyfriend, Leo, called her family and asked if they had heard from her. He said she didn't come home after the club, 
and her friends hadn't seen her since 11 o'clock the previous night when she left her phone and purse behind. Kenya's parents, Tony and Maria, were immediately concerned, and they reported her disappearance to local police. As she was over 18, police didn't feel as though an investigation needed to be opened right away, but Tony couldn't let it rest. He retrieved her phone from her friends and began to look through the many missed calls and text messages she'd received since she was last seen. He noticed one message in particular from an unsaved number. It read, Hey, this is Travis, the guy who gave you a ride last night, white creepy van. Did you get your car home okay? Tony tried to call the number numerous times without any response. In the meantime, Kenya's friends and family members created flyers and began to post them around the Denver area. On April 2nd, her phone rang and Tony spoke to the guy who texted her, Travis Forbes. Forbes told Tony he had dropped a friend off at an apartment block when he saw Kenya sitting on the curb speaking with a homeless man. He said she seemed upset, so he offered her a ride home as she lived close to his place of work. Kenya gratefully accepted the offer and got into the van. She then asked if they could stop somewhere so she could get a cigarette, so they pulled in at a gas station, but it was closed. According to Forbes, Kenya noticed a young man sitting close by and she struck up a conversation with him in Spanish before getting a cigarette from him and continuing to speak to him. Forbes said he felt as though Kenya was safe, so he just left. Tony arranged to meet Forbes at the gas station, and his parental intuition made him wary enough to bring his pistol with him. Maria was terrified that Tony would get hurt, or hurt someone, so she called the police and asked them to go to the gas station before Tony did. When Tony arrived, the police were waiting, and so was Forbes. Forbes repeated the story to police officers and allowed them to look inside his van as he spoke with Tony and apologized for not getting Kenya home safely. The family were hopeful that Kenya just needed some space from her boyfriend and that she would arrive home eventually, but by Monday, April 5th, there was no sign of her. Detective Nash Garul with the Missing and Exploited Persons Unit was assigned to the case. Investigators discovered that Kenya had been removed from the club with a man and CCTV footage shows her arriving at his apartment building with him on the night she went missing. After speaking with the man in question, detectives learned that Kenya used the bathroom before leaving again, and closed-circuit TV footage backed this up. Kenya was next seen speaking with a homeless man outside of the apartment building, and this is where she was picked up by Travis Forbes. Forbes had been out celebrating his sister's birthday with his friend, Eddie Fajardo, that night when he first encountered Kenya. She was wearing a black hooded sweatshirt and a black miniskirt. Forbes recalled that Kenya spoke with a thick accent and appeared upset about breaking up with her boyfriend. He said he had taught her breathing exercises to help her calm down. Fajardo told the police that there had been a large black rubber mat covering the floor in the back of the van when Forbes dropped him at home, and Kenya was still in the van. Forbes told the detectives that he had last seen Kenya at the gas station on the 500 block of Spear Boulevard with a man he believed was named Dan. He then went to spend the rest of the night with his girlfriend, Carrie Humphrey. Carrie corroborated his alibi. 
Forbes agreed to come back for a polygraph examination to fully clear himself from the investigation. On the same day as the investigation began, April 5th, police officers were called out to a bakery in southeast Denver after the owners suspected that someone had been stealing from the register. Officers examined the CCTV footage and saw Travis Forbes, who rented a space there to make granola bars called Forbes. Forbes is seen moving a large white cooler into the walk-in freezer at 7.10 p.m. on April 1st. Ten minutes later, he appears in the office wearing long cleaning gloves and holding a bottle of bleach. He is then seen turning off the surveillance cameras. The footage showed what Forbes was doing in the hour after he had texted Kenya's phone and asked if she had gotten home okay. Investigators searched the bakery and found a barrel with the burnt remains of black clothing. They also found the cooler, which had been scrubbed clean and was held closed with duct tape. Next, they searched Forbes' white 2000 Ford van. The van smelled like bleach, and it was evident that it had been thoroughly cleaned inside. The black rubber mat was missing and was replaced with new carpet, but the tires and undercarriage were dirty and dusty. After reviewing Forbes' cell phone records, the detectives were able to see that he had been in a rural part of Keensburg shortly after Kenya went missing. Police searches were conducted in the area, but they found nothing out of place. The FBI Safe Streets Task Force and experts from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, they were brought in to assist with the investigation. A week after Kenya was last seen, Maria spoke with the Denver Post at her home and said, I feel like they took my baby daughter, my heart, my soul, my everything. I feel like just running out of this house to go look for her, to find her. I'm so tired. Almost two weeks passed by without any sign of Kenya, and Forbes agreed to be interviewed on television. He repeated the same story about offering Kenya a ride home because she was clearly drunk and upset. He said that she didn't want her parents to see her like that, so he told her he would bring her back to Aurora. Forbes became upset during the interview and stated, Until they find this girl, it's going to weigh on me. I do feel responsible. I chose not to care, to be indifferent. At another point, he asked the interviewer what the missing girl's name was. Kenya's heartbroken parents continued to hope that she would come home. On May 6th, Maria posted on Kenya's social media page and said, Baby girl, I'm just waiting for you and my heart is just broken without you. God is going to bring you back to my arms and I am praying that he brings you to me on Mother's Day. That is the only gift I want for Mother's Day. Just keep your faith and be strong. Everything will be all right. You know that. Mommy is always here for you. I miss you so much. Mi trompudita te amo con todo mi corazón. We are all waiting for your return. Me and Abulita and the rest of the family are praying for you every day. You not being here is so painful. We await your return to make this pain and sorrow go away. Without enough evidence to arrest Forbes, the investigators were forced to let him go, and he moved to Austin, Texas. Within weeks, an arrest warrant was issued for Forbes after he failed to return an ex-girlfriend's SUV. Forbes's ex had loaned him the SUV in mid-April so he could deliver granola bars, but he hadn't contacted her by April 29th, 
so she called the police. She told them that she was concerned for Forbes as he had been distraught over the suspicions surrounding his involvement in Kenya's disappearance. But police officers told her to file a stolen vehicle report. Forbes was arrested in Austin later that day after 11 officers followed him as he drove the SUV to an apartment before taking a bicycle from the vehicle and riding away. The officers turned on their lights to get him to stop, but he didn't stop, so he was chased by an officer on foot who knocked him off the bike and placed him under arrest. Later, Denver Detective Garul traveled to the jail to interview him and obtain a DNA sample. When questioned about closed-circuit TV footage from the bakery and the barrel, Forbes explained that he had taken money from the register and he had burned marijuana in the barrel. The interview was stopped when Forbes asked for an attorney, and he was extradited back to Jefferson County before being released when his ex-girlfriend refused to press charges for vehicle theft. She said that she suspected the police knew where Forbes was all along and had coerced her into filing the report. Forbes had called her within days of his arrest, and he apologized to her, so she asked that the charges were dismissed. After Forbes was released, the Denver detectives passed information to Fort Collins police officers to let them know that Forbes was in their jurisdiction and was being watched. When Detective Jacqueline Shackley noticed the similarities with Bleach when Lydia Tillman was attacked just days later, she contacted the Denver police and compared the DNA found beneath Lydia's nails to the DNA sample Detective Garul had obtained from Forbes. It was a match. Forbes was already in jail for providing false information when he was arrested on suspicion of assault and rape. When Kenya's family heard that Travis Forbes had been arrested in connection with the near-fatal attack in Fort Collins, they made a public appeal for more information about Kenya. Tony Lee asked that Forbes reveal all he knew telling the Denver Post, We want to know where Kenya is, and we think he knows. I want him to man up and talk. Until he does that, we're stuck on April 1st, 2011. Tony described how the arrest made him more sure that Forbes was involved in Kenya's disappearance. And, speaking about the attack on Lydia Tillman, he said, It's the same nightmare. I'm glad this girl is alive. I'm sure that was not his intention. It's the same thing all over again. It makes you wonder what else he has done. Kenya had been missing for 72 long days, and tens of thousands of flyers had been posted throughout Denver and Aurora. Her parents had remained hopeful that she was alive, and her eight-year-old brother Anthony had drawn a picture for Kenya with the words, Dear Kenya, welcome home. I really appreciate that you are home, and I really love you. The picture was hung just inside the front door, in the hopes that Kenya would see it when she walked inside again. Lydia Tillman, who had almost been killed in the attack in Fort Collins, was still in a coma. Her family released a statement that read, Lydia continues to fight for her life just as she did the night she was brutally attacked. Her strength and courage has made a difference in the world. She is a hero. Lydia's loving spirit is what makes her special to all who know her. Lydia loves expanding her world through travel. She enjoys the outdoors and being surrounded by her family. Since this is an ongoing investigation, 
the family will not answer any questions related to that dreadful night or the case itself. We would like to make this statement so that any fundraising events will proceed without the presence of the media or press. Please respect our privacy and the sensitivity in this matter. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. With Forbes behind bars for the attack, Tony Lee once again appealed for more information about Kenya's whereabouts and said, I personally believe that Travis Forbes knows the answers to all of the questions as to what happened to Kenya. He knows what happened, and I believe there are three or four more people who were involved. The Crime Stoppers Fund is now just over $4,000, and we will keep adding to it until the money entices someone to speak up. A few days later, Detective Garul made his way to Fort Collins, where Forbes was being held on charges of attempted murder. While speaking with the detective, Forbes expressed pity for himself and spoke about how he had wasted his life. He told the detective, Something I need to do is find out what the definition of sociopath is, because I'm pretty sure I fit in. Forbes lamented on his future and remarked, Now I will spend the rest of my life in prison being raped. I will be raped. Forbes told the detective that he wanted to confess, but he claimed it wouldn't benefit him if he did. He also indicated that there were more victims. Forbes was asked what he wanted in exchange for a confession in Kenya's case. In response, Forbes said, I want to go to prison without being labeled as a sex offender. The district attorney's office agreed to cut a plea deal with Forbes, that if he pleaded guilty to Kenya's murder and confessed to where her body was, he wouldn't be convicted of rape or face the death penalty. A week later, on September 7, 2011, Forbes was taken from jail and directed the investigators to Keensburg. 
They pulled in along Interstate 76 to a field around 40 miles east of Denver, and Forbes walked towards some trees and began to cry. Buried four feet beneath the dirt, Kenya's remains were discovered taped into the fetal position and covered with tarp. As agreed to in the plea deal, Forbes was taken to be interviewed at the Fort Collins Police Station by the Denver detectives in charge of Kenya's case. Forbes explained that he had found Kenya sitting outside of the apartment building, like he had initially said, and she was drunk and upset. While in his van, she had passed out, and while she was unconscious, Forbes sexually assaulted her. Kenya regained consciousness, and she fought back, so Forbes beat and strangled her to death. He hid her body in a cooler that he had to tape shut as rigor mortis made it difficult to close over her stiffened limbs. Once at the bakery, Forbes placed the cooler into the freezer and turned off the cameras so he could strip Kenya's body and burn her clothes and the mat from his van in a barrel out back. He then drove her body to Keensburg, where he buried her, and then cleaned the cooler and his van with bleach. Travis Forbes was charged with Kenya's murder that same day. An autopsy conducted by Dr. James Way could not rule out strangulation as the cause of death due to advanced decomposition. Her feet had skeletonized, and other parts of her body had degraded to the point where no other injuries could be seen. Although they were devastated by the discovery of Kenya's body, her family were relieved to finally have answers. Tony spoke with the Denver Post and said, I told you once that we were stuck on April 1st, 2011, when Kenya went missing. Every day was April 1st. Well, last Wednesday, I was able to turn the calendar page. We see this as a book, and this is the end of the first chapter, and Saturday, we'll start chapter two. Kenya's funeral took place a few days later, and on September 26, 2011, Travis Forbes pleaded guilty to Kenya's murder. He told the court, What happened to Kenya was a horrific, horrific crime. I will never have words to express my apology. I was horrible. I was cowardly. I didn't mean to do it. I didn't plan it. I took a life. I'm so sorry. For the people that knew me, I have to say, remember me, please. Remember me as I was, not the monster I became. I'm sorry. Kenya's parents also spoke at the hearing. Maria described how Forbes had taken everything from her, and she prayed for strength. Tony said that he was grateful that Forbes had finally confessed. He told the court, He's more or less been holding us hostage since April 1st. He doesn't have that control over us anymore. It's always been on his schedule, on his time, on his whim. And now he doesn't have that control over us anymore. Being a Christian, you're supposed to exercise forgiveness, and I think that's something I'll reach down the road. Not today. Forbes was sentenced to life in prison and was ordered to return to court the following day in relation to the attempted murder of Lydia Tillman. Lydia had spent five weeks in a coma after the horrific attack she sustained in July, and she had woken up non-speaking and suffering from nerve damage as a result of the stroke she suffered. She was released from the hospital just days before the hearing where Forbes pleaded guilty to attempted murder. She bravely looked straight at Forbes as her father read her statement aloud. She wrote, 
You have taken nothing from me. My spirit, my soul, and my mind remain untouched. May you find peace in this life. Forbes did not meet Lydia's gaze. And when it was his turn to speak, he said, Why did I do this? I have been searching for that also in my heart and soul. I think we commit violent acts because deep down we find hatred of ourselves. I am so thankful that Lydia Tillman survived because if I hadn't been caught, I probably would have done this again because deep down I'm fucked up. I'm evil. Lydia's mother, Sharon, wrote a statement in which she spoke about how Forbes' attack had left her daughter with nerve damage, a broken jaw, eye socket, and how her wrist and thumb had been left in pieces. He had stomped on her head, shattering bones before strangling her, causing enough damage that she suffered a stroke. She only survived because she jumped from a window on the second floor. Sharon Tillman told Forbes, no punishment is just enough for you. Forbes was ordered to spend 48 years in prison for the attempted murder, a sentence to be served consecutively with the life sentence he had received the previous day. The official date for sentencing was set for October 2011, and Forbes told Judge Thomas French that he did not want to be there. Forbes said, I've already been sentenced to life. Why should I be here for 48 years? Forbes was forced to attend the sentencing hearing where once again, he had to listen to Lydia's short and profound statement where she wished him peace. Forbes did not want to speak at the hearing and told the judge he had already said what he needed to say. The judge told him that his actions were dark and inexplicable, and referring to Lydia, Judge French stated, I can honestly say I won't remember much about you, but rather I'll hold the memory of her heroism. In an interview with the Denver Post a month later, Lydia was asked about how she forgave Forbes. She said, It was during his sentencing that I was able to forgive him. At first, I felt extreme anger towards him. Then, I felt sad for him. He must be in so much extreme pain to so brutally hurt another human. Thanks to, at least due in part, the stroke, I know that to forgive is easier than holding anger. Faced with a life in love and forgiveness or a life of fear and hatred, I embraced love. It was easy. That way, my anger is my own. I only have to look inside myself to discover answers. I feel my life prepared me for this. Until the moment the attack occurred, I don't consider myself as a victim nor a hero. I have a strong will to live that served me well during the incident. I was fighting to survive. That's all. Lydia had surgeries and a lot of intensive rehab and physiotherapy to regain her speech and independence, and she opened her own yoga studio in 2012. When asked what drove her forward, Lydia said, Love. It was love who saved me on the 4th of July. My love for this crazy life. Love continues to be my strength and support. That and my ovaries of steel and modern medicine. Bracelets bearing the letters that spell her name have been used to promote an acronym she lives by, Live Your Days Inspired Anew. Speaking with the Denver Post before the one-year anniversary of Kenya's murder, Tony Lee spoke about the double-edged sword that was finding out the truth about what happened to his daughter. 
He said, It's better to know, and it's better not to know at the same time. You hope your case is going to be that miracle, like that Elizabeth Smart Girl, even though a reasonable person knows that's probably not going to be the case. But when you know, you know, and then you have a whole new set of stuff to deal with. Knowing is not the end, it's the beginning of other stuff. We're still dealing with that stuff every day. Tony described how Maria's grief had made her question the identification of Kenya's body, and she wondered if they should have insisted on using DNA instead of fingerprints. Tony said, Hope is that hard a thing to let go of. It's the only thing you have left. Speaking with Fox 31 Denver, Maria commented, Every day, it's not living anymore without my baby. It hurts so much. I cry every day. Carrie Humphrey, Forbes' girlfriend at the time of the investigation, had been arrested for providing him with a false alibi shortly after Kenya's body was found. In January 2012, she pleaded not guilty to felony charges of trying to influence a public servant, but changed her plea six months later. She pleaded guilty to charges of attempting to influence a public official, two counts of false reporting to authorities, and perjury. At the sentencing hearing in September 2012, prosecutor Carrie Lombardi spoke about Carrie's behavior during police interviews in April of the previous year. The prosecutor said, She was very smug. She was flippant. She was giggling. It was not serious in the least bit. She came across as lying. Carrie told the judge that she hadn't lied to cover up the murder or obstruct the investigation. She explained that she had agreed to provide Forbes with an alibi because she loved him and believed he had done nothing wrong. Carrie Humphreys was sentenced to two months in jail, 2,000 hours of community service, and four years of probation. Tony Lee spoke out against the lenient sentence and said, We're talking about almost a month that she had the police spinning their wheels, that she had the authorities not being able to do anything because her lies were stopping them. I'm not happy with that sentence. I'm not happy at all. Two years would have been appropriate, in my opinion. During his interview with Detective Garul before Kenya's body was recovered, Forbes has indicated there were more victims. Amy Ananen went missing near Creek Canyon, Colorado on July 8, 2011, four days after Lydia Tillman was attacked. Her Jeep was found unlocked, containing car keys, purse, phone, and hiking backpack, but she remained missing until remains were discovered in late 2013. Amy's sister, Andrea, asked authorities to question Travis Forbes about any possible involvement after it emerged he had hinted at other victims. Skeletal remains were found in Clear Creek near I-76 and identified as belonging to Amy in early 2014. Her cause and manner of death remain undetermined, and investigators have not confirmed any link to Forbes, nor have they been able to identify any other possible victims. Both Lydia Tillman and Kenya's family have channeled their trauma and pain into advocacy work. In 2013, Tony spoke in support of a bill which would help to reduce the number of untested rape kits in Colorado. Tony said that he believed that the collection of evidence from rape kits would help more victims come forward. He stated, If Kenya would have lived through what she went through, she would have been here today. 
Our hope and prayer is to let women know that at least the evidence that was collected is going to be added to a database. In 2022, Tony spoke with KDVR and highlighted the increase in violent femicides in Aurora after five women had been killed within a year. He said, The hurt never wanes. It's just something that's with us every single second and every single minute of every day. What's been happening over the last week is unusual and abnormal to me. I'm hoping all these incidents are isolated and there's no pattern to it or anything like that. These five girls all have families. These families, 11 years from now, are going to be right here where I'm at today. This episode was researched and written by Eileen McFarlane. Editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman. Script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law & Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. We will be back next week. Thank you for listening, and please be safe. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.